Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for being here. Hopefully, you're having a great reInvent so far. With the rise of big data, a lot of enterprises are now trying to figure out how to adopt big data analytics. In a recent study, uh, it found that over 50% of the enterprises are now trying to figure out how to adopt big data and analytics and are at various stages in their adoption cycle. And many enterprises are also at the same time trying to figure out how to move their on-premises data warehouse to a cloud-based data lake for analytics and big data processing. My name is Naveen Echman. I am a principal technical program manager at Amazon. I have with me Craig Woods, who is a senior solutions architect at Amazon. I manage the program for transforming big data analytics at Amazon, and Craig is one of our key solutions architects. At the outset, I want to mention that we are from Amazon.com, and we are a customer of AWS. Very similar to all of you, we use the public interfaces. We use the same training and documentation that you all use, same tools. We have an AWS account team that we work through. We also provide our use cases and feedback to AWS so they can actually make their services better for all AWS customers. Today, we are going to share with you the details of a big data system that we built at Amazon to meet our business needs as we deprecated a massive Oracle data warehouse. <coughs> Along the way, we learned several lessons. The concepts and ideas that we are going to share today is applicable to many enterprises. And you can take away a lot of these concepts and ideas and apply them in your organizations to build scalable, flexible, and cost-effective systems to meet your organizational needs. So like very similar to many of your organizations, we had a, an Oracle data warehouse that we have been using and evolving over the last 20 years. And at some point in time, it stopped meeting our business needs. It stopped growing with our business, even though we were extensively investing our engineering resources, and we even had specialized hardware investments that we made. So we had to determine a path forward. We had to build a system that continued to meet our business needs. So we invested in building an AWS-based data lake to meet our business needs. We migrated all of our business units to this new system. Along the way, we learned several lessons, many technical and many organizational. We're going to share the details of what we learned through this journey, and hopefully you can apply that in your organizations. The way we are going to structure today's discussion is going to be, first we are going to talk about what were some of the challenges that we faced with our system, why we went about doing what we did. Then we are going to talk about the what aspect, meaning the architecture. We go into details of some of the technical decisions that we made. And then finally, we will talk about how we moved 90 plus business units, thousands of users from the old legacy data warehouse to the new system which was an AWS-based system. And then lastly, we will look forward to your questions, and we'll take questions at the end. Very similar to your organizations, Amazon has several globally distributed business units. They produce tons of data, and our users in these businesses use that data to perform analytics and make decisions. We have been using uh, a massive data warehouse to accomplish this. To set some context, I want to provide some 
data about how we use the system, what are the types of users, and so on. So that way you can actually put all of the things that we talk about in context. Similar to many enterprises, we have a very diverse user base. So this user base consists of data engineers, business analysts, data scientists, and software engineers who work with data. And they perform things like reporting, machine learning, batch processing, and exploratory analysis as well. We currently have about 38,000 data sets in our system. We also provide some curated data sets which are foundational to our business as well. We have over 80,000 users who actively use our system today, and they run about 900,000 jobs. This kind of gives you a flavor for the type of business and how our users are actually using our system. As you can very well imagine, there are a lot of challenges that come with running a business at this scale on a system that does not necessarily meet all of the needs that we have. For instance, one of the challenges that we had with our legacy data warehouse was that the data storage and compute were coupled, which meant our data was growing year over year, whereas we had to go add hardware just because our data was growing, even though our compute needs were not as fast in terms of growth. As we added more and more hardware and increased the size of the system, we ended up running into lots of issues. And this required hundreds of hours of our engineering time to go patch it, move data, just to keep the system up and running. On top of that, we had specialized hardware that needed to be scaled for peak, and the cost continued to go up. In addition to this, we were running proprietary hardware, which meant our licensing costs continued to grow up as well. I know I'm pretty certain that many of you are in a similar situation like us, and we had to figure out a path forward. We had to come up with a solution that was better, and that too very soon. So at that point, we launched a project called Andes. We'll talk a lot more about Andes and what we did about that. So we set out with certain goals for Andes. First and foremost, we wanted to make sure that the data storage and compute were separated. We used S3 to store massive amounts of data securely, cost-effectively, and reliably. <coughs> then we wanted to make sure that we have an open systems architecture, meaning our businesses and teams should be able to use the technology for data processing that met their business needs. We wanted to make sure that our teams are able to bring, say, Redshift or Redshift Spectrum or EMR, for that matter. When we started the project, we actually just focused on enabling Redshift and EMR from a compute perspective, and the data was available in the lake, and the data would then be synced with these compute systems for processing. The next goal we set out with was to make sure we leverage AWS, and as I mentioned previously, we provide our use cases and feedback to AWS so they can continually improve their systems and services for all AWS customers. We were coming from a data warehouse that was based on a relational model. So we wanted to support some of those semantics in our new system. So our system, we deliberately made sure that it was satisfying not just data warehousing needs, but also was able to support a lot of the big data use cases that were emerging. So we ended up building a system that supports data warehouse semantics and also supports the big data processing use cases. 
So this provides a context for some of the challenges that we ran into, why we chose to build a system that we chose. Next, I'm gonna invite Craig to talk about the details from an architecture perspective. He's gonna spend some time talking about the technical decisions that we made along the way. And then I'm gonna come back and talk about the journey of migrating the 90 plus business units, the thousands of users from the old system to the new system. All right, first the obligatory opening joke. Uh, if I can paraphrase a uh, beer commercial, I don't always get laryngitis, but when I do, it's the week before reInvent speak <clears throat> speech. So I apologize, I will be uh, taking pauses to uh, hydrate. So let's take, so, take a look uh, at some of the technology solutions that we came up with for uh, our, uh, <laughs> our, our Andes uh, project. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to deprecate a 20-year-old system that is in use across your entire corporation for just about everything you can possibly imagine. Um, I'm imagining a lot of you have chosen not to do that. Um, so when we stopped running and we really sat down and faced this problem, this is where we started from. The existing data warehouse is a, a very pure extract load transform architecture, which gave us some advantages. In the extract load transform architecture, all user jobs are SQL queries. All of the transform lo transformation logic is in a SQL query. This is an advantage because it means that all we really had to do was figure out how to run those queries against a, something that would support a similar syntax, something like SQL. Um, that isn't the only problem we had to deal with, but it did mean that there was a boundary there that if we, if we chose to preserve this extract load transform pattern, we would be able to do a migration under the covers in many ways. We simply could re almost replace one for one the Oracle system with equivalent AWS services, obviously much more complex than that, but that general pattern was the foundation of the overall project plan. In this system, um, once the data has been transformed in a SQL query, we would load it right back into the data warehouse. We did not have a separate staging area. We didn't have a separate ETL environment, separate analysis, ad hoc query, or reporting environments. All of the transformations were done on a single giant fleet with a single set of tables. Uh, this is very agile, it's a very powerful pattern, and you can see that it almost looks a little bit like a data lake in some ways, all of the data in one place, very easy for people to um, pivot and adjust and, and, and adapt to uh, new requirements very, very quickly by grabbing just about any data set that they need without needing to move data at all. So again, a pattern that allowed us to move in a fairly agile way into this new system if you ignore the fact that there were a million jobs and it was Oracle SQL and not Oracle SQL and all those little fiddly details that kept us um, up nights. Um, once the data was processed, it was exported out for any in-depth processing like data mining or uh, business automation through software teams or through uh, reporting systems. None of that happened directly in this system. Those were all external. Um, and that was actually one of the big pain points for this system. It's hard to export data from a data warehouse, uh, particularly an Oracle data warehouse. So this is, what we wanted to do in this project was be able to preserve the, the strengths of this platform, the ELT pattern, the simplicity of, um, and the agility of our analytics environment, but uh, move it into a more scalable, more accessible, and certainly more open system, as, as Naveen has highlighted. Um, so 
we, we also needed to make sure that we had a very clear boundary around scope. Um, I've made it sound maybe a little bit easy because we have these foundational patterns that are very portable in some ways, but it isn't easy, right? And just the sheer number of jobs, the sheer penetration across the entire business meant that we had to be very deliberate and very careful about this migration. And so some of the things that we chose not to do that could have added value and were certainly exciting, but would have increased the scope and complexity of the project substantially. We knew, for example, that our users were somewhat familiar with Redshift. We already used Redshift. Because Oracle didn't scale, we had added in specialized fleets of Redshift uh, servers for those queries that could no longer be scaled on Oracle at all. And that had been a very successful strategy. And one thing we learned is that our users found Redshift to be just as easy to use as Oracle, and they found that the transition from one to the other was manageable. It took work. They are different architectures under the covers. But many queries, you move them over, and they still work. And there really isn't a lot of effort involved. And we have smart users, and so they were able to um, yeah, um, train themselves, learn, explore, and, ex and experiment to find the optimal patterns on Redshift. So we made an architectural decision. Our primary target for the migration would be Redshift. This is a little counterintuitive. Many software engineers raised their hands and said, well, what about EMR? Right? It's more efficient, more scalable, better solution. That would have required a lot more heavy lifting. EMR, Oracle to EMR is a bigger shift. There are more complexities. It's a different user experience than the, the, the uh, difference between Oracle and Redshift. So we chose Redshift as our primary target. We also en knew we would be enabling, as you see, you'll see later, EMR, because that is a, is a key, um, key technology. But we knew that most of the queries would be running on Redshift after this uh, migration was complete. All right, so that's where we started. And this is where we ended up. Ingestion looks mostly the same. You'll notice uh, we're not pulling data out of Oracle systems anymore. While we were doing this, of course, the business is also um, deprecating Oracle in other places across our business. And we really don't see very many Oracle data sources anymore. We're much more in getting data in, from cloud systems. But overall, ingestion looked the same. But instead of persisting the data it, into an Oracle database, now it goes directly into S3, the lake. <clears throat> And it goes in through the Andes service that we wrote. So S3 provides elastic storage. It provides all kinds of powerful benefits for storing and sharing data. But there are additional features that we knew were necessary that we built that would support not just our lake um, for storing raw and very large data sets, but as Naveen mentioned, we also wanted to be able to store derived data sets. And we also wanted to be able to orchestrate our changes on those data sets. So the Andes service provides important primitives um, for orchestrating change in data sets over time, uh, data set lifecycle semantics, and uh, data set propagation. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But we knew that we would be propagating the data out to compute fleets. On top of the Andy service is the Hoot UI. It's a full service UI that gave users control over data set creation, data set modification and update, and data set deprecation. And there were workflows implemented in the Andy service for things like rebuilding tables or modifying schema and rewriting data sets and all of that. So it was a complete solution for data set management in addition to the, the, the raw features of a lake. So when the data needs to be utilized, instead of, you, 
uh, since we knew we were going to be running the jobs on um, Redshift fleets, and, and many, many Redshift fleets, not a single fleet, we built a, um, what we call synchronizers. Synchronizers are simply tools that integrate with the Andes uh, primitives for, for data updates and propagate all changes out in a coherent way to um, downstream computing fleets. This includes Redshift fleets. It includes um, e glue and EMR fleets, or I'm sorry, glue catalogs. Um, and it includes also spectrum fleets as well. For glue, the, the updates consist of metadata only. We don't move bytes for the data set. That stays in, in the data lake. And the EMR uh, is able to analyze the data in place. For Redshift, uh, we propagate the data and the schema out to the remote target. And jobs are executed on that remote target um, coherently uh, and in, in a coordinated way with our synchronization. And then for Spectrum, um, it's a bit of both. We propagate the metadata changes into Spectrum. We also update the Redshift catalog to be aware of that new data set if it needs to be. And so it is a, it is a um, combined system. And finally, the, the, the other piece that we built is a completion service um, over on the far right. We, it, it's a, we refactored our, our existing workflow service that was running all of our existing jobs. And we created this separate completion service that's aware of Andy's state and Andy's data sets but can be used <clears throat> by multiple uh, orchestration tools, our legacy system, but also uh, custom EMR workflow systems that were built in-house, uh, AWS Glue ETL orchestration, and even open systems. Airflow, for example, is a very popular choice for people now who are orchestrating data sets on this flat platform. I'm going to um, step away from the architecture for a moment, and I'm going to talk about how did we get from A to B, right? It's all well and good to come up with these elegant architectures, but we did have 900,000 jobs to migrate to. And how did we do that? Um, so let's take a look at what it looked, that process looked like. Migration sequence is we started with the legacy workflows, transform load into the warehouse, and that was just uh, looped over and over and over again. We stood up our, our uh, data lake, and the first thing we did is replicate the data. <clears throat> and I'm going to pause for a moment. Excuse me. This is first because we wanted to be, allow users to migrate independently, I'll say. We did not want to try to coordinate the activities of the entire company uh, in a tightly coupled uh, project plan where we deprecated certain tables and they had to move their jobs on a certain schedule and all of that. Instead, we took the approach that we would modify our load strategy so that we could load in parallel to both systems symmetrically and keep both systems live and active over an extended period of time. Um, and then we replicated the data using a, a bulk data mover <clears throat> so that customers could then begin migrating their data sets, or their, their workflows, I'm sorry, their jobs, over to Redshift clusters and EMR fleets <clears throat> that were <clears throat> hosting data sets using subscriptions from the Andes service. <clears throat> so, the process, the real process of the migration, if you will, started with users starting to migrate incrementally their, their, uh, their transforms from the legacy system to ones that are running against the Andes data sets. Uh, we also felt it was a, a high-value addition to build bulk query conversion tools. Obviously, that makes sense. At the scale we're working at, there's a lot of return on investment there. But we didn't actually have to build 
the whole tool because we actually leveraged AWS's SCT tool, the schema conversion tool, which will do Oracle to Redshift syntax conversions. We built a dry run capability that let us do this, let us practice, if you will, running, running this against the entire catalog of all million job, plus jobs that are in our catalog, converting them, finding the gaps, and then going back, and we worked with Redshift and got our conversion <coughs> percentages as high as 90% or more by the end of the project. This was a huge time savings both for our engineering organization, since we didn't have to do the actual heavy lifting of building that tool, but it was also um, <coughs> a, a huge win for the, the organization as a whole, because we saved many, many man hours of effort on our customers' part <coughs> by building that automation. So we got to the fun part of the project, right? We were almost done, the last 10%, right? That's the easy percentage, right? You've all done this before. <clears throat> so we braced ourselves for that long tail of people who just couldn't migrate, where features, feature gaps, where we hadn't built something yet. And we're not done building the system. It's still being evolving. There's still many, many things we want to add. And we knew there were gaps, and we knew that users would come to us and say, oh, I have to get an extension. We built in a two-week extension, knowing that that would happen. And then we had a contingency plan that said, what about the running our Oracle for another couple months, if necessary? Because clearly, at this scale, can you imagine? 20 years of embedded tech, uh, usage. Um, it didn't happen. Instead, we started getting brag emails. Hey, we're done. Hey, come to, come to our party. We finished our migration. Hey, I get, I'm bragging to my VP. We're done, we're done, we're done. We did get one or two. Um, requests for extensions. Uh, but our graph, instead of doing a Pareto curve and, and tailing off to the right for indefinitely, it, went to, it accelerated down to zero. The, the, the closer we got to the deadline, the faster it go, the curve went, and we actually got almost to zero before the deadline. <clears throat> we were a little puzzled by this. We talked to customers. What we found out is they were so excited about the capabilities of this new system, the, the speed with which their queries were executing, the agility with which they could operate, that even when they did find that they were blocked, they took their time to engineer their own way or, and problem solve their own way around those problems without even coming to us because they had the, t the open system. They could stand up a Redshift cluster, build their own short little workflow using a custom uh, workflow engine, and then deliver the data into the warehouse just to hit that deadline. And they were so motivated that that's what happened. We had that two-week contingency. At the end of the first week, we were at zero jobs running on the data warehouse. Not a single VP escalation email. We didn't have to call you know, on our director or Jeff Bezos to, send, you know, to, to bring down the hammer and yell at people, you've got to finish, you've got to finish. None of that. It just happened. It just, the people just migrated. Um, so this is a testament, obviously, to the power that um, a data lake architecture can give you and the agility which it can give your business, even at this scale, which is a mind-boggling scale, honestly. All right, so that's what happened. On our, at, the, at the deadline, we actually had no jobs running. Two weeks later, we had no legacy data warehouse, literally powered off. Um, and you know, we sent people in to start dismantling it. It's quite an accomplishment. There was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears here by our engineering team. They worked really hard. People across the company really busted their butts to hit this deadline, but it was a huge success. All right, let's dig in a little bit more. Um, 
on the Andes metadata service itself and what it does for us. I talked about synchronization primitives. Because we're running a data warehouse on this system, not just a data mart, or I'm sorry, a data lake, um, we have the notion of an updates that are merges as well as replace type updates. This gives our users the ability to treat data sets as if they were a table. They don't have to figure out what's the latest version of each record. We, that logic is built into the Andes metadata service itself. And every data set can have those, met, those semantics. Um, and that aids in synchronization as well. That's that, the primitives um, of tracking exactly what has ha changed in a given data set, having a pointer and uh, tracking the changes in that pointer and then propagating changes for each client um, is all part of the synchronization primitives. I talked about the completion service. That's a really key part of our overall architecture to allow not just blocks of data or files or raw files, but the notion of it, how complete is a data set. If any of you have worked with uh, uh, streaming services, you know about watermarks uh, and uh, types, the different types of completeness guarantees. Currently, the completeness service just handles uh, um, a, uh, a, a true completeness guarantee. It doesn't have watermarks. We plan to add that as a future uh, development project. <clears throat> we have manifests. Manifests give us the ability to do some um, important uh, write optimization, uh, I'm sorry, read optimization during writes. Um, we break up files into appropriate sizes and use manifests to describe uh, the actual update so that users don't have to <clears throat> actually get down to the nitty gritty details of how many blocks, how many files, the size of those files, and where to discover all of those files. That's all abstracted away into a manifest for each of the writes into the system. We also have access management and governance, as you would expect. Um, a particularly neat feature is managing shared encryption keys, uh, which is a really interesting technical challenge when you're dealing with you know, every person in the company sharing data to every other person in your company. Um, and then, of course, audit logging for changes, lineage being a crucial um, feature for managing uh, data at this scale um, across the entire company. The subscriptions <clears throat> it, uh, that people can set up for these data sets include both setting up a synchronizer, but also something we call a contract. This describes um, the contract between the producer and the consumer, um, things about governance, security, and SLAs for those data sets. Uh, synchronization itself will do both data update and refresh and, um, and propagation, but it will also do schema changes and data set lifecycle events like table rebuilds or backfills. Um, the synchronization also has features <clears throat> that include the ability to take a subset of those data sets. You don't have to subscribe to the entire order data system. You can only take the French order data systems or orders for the last year or two years rather than the full 25 plus years of data that we have in our data warehouse. So these are very powerful tools that allow users to tailor their environment um, and use the, the resources as efficiently as possible. Synchronizer targets. I talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, sometimes we get challenged by our engineering teams. Why are you using Redshift? You know, it, EMR is a, such a more elegant and more efficient solution, and no argument there. It is a powerful, uh, powerful tool. But as I described, we, we, just, we knew that Redshift would provide what, I call, what we use as shared compute fleets. Uh, these are fleets that are distributed throughout the organization. They're managed by a division or team uh, on behalf of their, their business customers. 
And they can tailor that. They can select the data sets they need. They can scale it to the size that they need. If they need, they can filter it. Um, and so shared compute fleets, we knew the primary target would be Amazon Redshift. Uh, but don't discount the fact that people are also using ETL on these as well. Redshift works for ETL, um, depending on your requirements and your strategy. But in, in, in an ELT model, those are also supporting ELT, uh, ETL, I should say. Um, and then we, we, the other target was the AWS Glue Catalog, which is uh, for all of the EMR-based clients. And we have huge uptake on this as well. We had one team that built a, a whole orchestrated solution to make a shared EMR cluster. So that, they, that team is, is beginning the process of migrating off of relational and into the full EMR process. That wasn't part of our team. That was just someone who was so excited about finally being able to access this data through EMR that they invested in that themselves and then shared it with the company. Um, this also exposes the data in, through AWS Athena and any number of other tools that are available for analytics. Um, so this is primarily, as I mentioned here, ETL, as you might expect. But as I said, we also have some shared compute fleets in that space. And we, ourselves, we don't care. And we don't have to care, right? Now we are managing the data, and the users are deciding the right tools to do their analysis and their computing. Um, and finally, Redshift Spectrum. Spectrum's an interesting story, <clears throat> and, and it's the final point in my talk um, today. Um, <clears throat> Spectrum came out after we were halfway through the project already. And we had set up the shared compute fleets on Redshift, and we already had several of them running, and people running jobs, and the migration was underway, and everything was proceeding forward. At, and Re Spectrum came out, and we immediately recognized the potential of this, um, of this tool. Spectrum means that Redshift, is, uh, Redshift clusters are now an ideal hybrid of coupled compute and decoupled compute. <clears throat> For data sets where performance is, you, you need to closely control the performance and you really need that tight control, you can cache that and manage it locally on your system as a local table. For the long tail of large data sets that are just massive and expensive on a Redshift fleet, or for data sets that are just rarely used. And, and I, um, as most of you, if you've done any analysis of data warehousing, know the vast majority of your data sets are rarely used, but it's important that they be available because they are used. And when they are used, you want them to just be there. You don't want to have to go find them and move them and, and all of that. So Spectrum is, is really just a fantastic extension to the, uh, the Redshift platform. And we were able to very quickly pivot in the middle of our process and uh, integrate our spectrum into our architecture. Um, basically, we just took our existing EMR uh, synchronizer and we cloned it and we created a Redshift version of that, did most of the same things, a few special tweaks just for spectrum, and voila, everything just sort of worked. Uh, there was some work in the, uh, the completeness tool too. That was, that was a fun little bit of technology as well. But the point of this part of the talk is simply you know, we didn't invent Spectrum. We didn't have to. Redshift did. What we had to be ready for was the fact that Redshift was going to invent Spectrum, um, that the new features and capabilities are emerging all the time from the AWS uh, portfolio. And, it, you know, it, this, was, this was a revolutionary, groundbreaking kind of change from our point of view for our particular solution. And we were able to get this with just a month or so of work. It wasn't an intern project. It was a little bit harder than that but it was, relatively speaking, quite cheap um, compared to the benefit that we got. Um, so um, 
it's just a, a final lesson, if you will, which is uh, make sure you're ready when, when AWS moves the needle for you um, to adapt and ingest and, and, and grab the new capabilities. All right, so let me bring uh, Naveen back up on the stage and uh, he'll give you a, a sense of how we managed people uh, and moving people around uh, effectively at this scale. Thank you, Craig. Craig was able to cover a lot of the technical details that will help you understand the Andes architecture and a lot of the technical decisions that we made. So what I want to do now is actually walk you through some of the Andes UI so you actually get a perspective of how the system looks, what is the look and feel for the users who are actually using the system. We'll take a quick peek at a few of the key capabilities that we have in our system, and then I will move towards how we actually moved 90 plus business units from the old system to the new system. First and foremost, as a user, when I go into the Andes user interface, I have the option to actually look for whatever data sets that I'm interested in. When I search for these data sets, I get all of the information that is associated with these data sets. Like for instance, in this case, I can get to see, hey, what is the size of the table or the data set that I'm looking at, what version is it, and so on and so forth. And then I can move on to understand what is the freshness of the data in the data lake for this given data set. As Craig mentioned, the data sets are published from the source systems into Andes, which is the data lake. And this is a very useful piece of information when you are consuming the data to know how fresh the data is in the lake because you're gonna be processing this data on a different target system. We also expose information like, hey, for a given table, what are all the columns, what is the type of the column, and associated metadata. And this is actually really useful because when you have 38,000 or 40,000 data sets in your catalog, you want to really understand whether this particular data set has the information that I am interested in. Once you have an idea of, okay, hey, these are the columns, then you also want to understand who else is actually using it. There are lots of other aspects of the system that you can start envisioning. Hopefully this is gonna help you kind of think through some of the use cases that you may have, very interesting use cases that will emerge. So this is in the context of subscriptions, for instance. Basically, subscription, as Craig mentioned, is a mechanism to get the data from the data lake to your target system. So, here, I can actually, as a user, go deep dive, understand, for instance, if it is a Redshift subscription, I can look at, for instance, the distribution keys, the SART keys that have been set, and so on and so forth. Finally, if I am actually convinced, hey, this is the table that I want to use for my analysis, I can actually go ahead and subscribe, presuming that I am authorized to actually subscribe to this data. So there is the authorization layer that Craig also mentioned that is part of this whole mechanism to ensure that only authorized users are able to actually consume the data from the lake and process that on their target systems. So this kind of gives you a flavor of the why and the what, architecture plus the user experience. The Andes uh, product itself has been in production for about 15 months. So we have been enhancing that based on customer feedback. Now, all this is fine. So we built the system, we have it ready to go. We had to figure out how do we move thousands of users who were using that old legacy data warehouse for the last 20 years. There were 200,000 queries that needed to be moved. How do we move that from there to the new system, which is Andes? So we'll talk a little bit about how we accomplished that over a period of time. Before I go there, I want to set some context for the migration. And this applies to, by the way, for all major enterprises or organizations that want to go through this. First off, 
business does not stop, which means we have to continue to meet our customers' needs and expectations. We need to ensure that they are able to continue to make business decisions using the data that's available in the system during the migration. Next, the new system was based on AWS, so which means the solutions that are built cannot work on the old system. They had to be redesigned. So we had to figure out ways to redesign the solutions so they worked in either Redshift, EMR, or Redshift Spectrum. And also, even though our users were using AWS, we had to retrain them to make sure that they are effectively using the cloud-based technologies. Lastly, all of the decisions about infrastructure were all centralized in the old system. In the new model, each of these business teams had to figure out how do they manage these AWS-based resources? How do they procure their resources? How do they change their processes in order to make this all happen? So these, these were the challenges that we had to make sure we are taking into consideration as we went through the migration. So as Craig also mentioned, this was not a simple exercise. So we wanted to make sure we organize the program in such a way that we get the most successful results while managing risks. We identified three aspects around which we organize the program. First, we set up a program management team with experienced technical program managers to make sure they are able to run the program at a company-wide scale. Second, the program management team was responsible for setting program metrics. They were responsible for managing all communication with our users, our businesses, and so on and so forth. They were, they were responsible for managing requests for product enhancements and making sure that we are meeting our customers' needs as we are actually having them move from the old system to the new system. We also set up a network of what we call single points of contact. Here, here on, I'll refer to them as SPOCs. They were the glue between the business team and the central team. We provided them the tools to make sure that they had all of the capabilities to make sure that their business teams were having success migrating from the old system to the new system. Also, every business unit was required to provide a target metric, a monthly target metric against the program metric. And we reported that to the senior leadership to make sure we were tracking to the progress that we had committed to. Next, we had about 200,000 queries that we needed to migrate from the old system to the new system. It was humanly impossible to do that manually, so we created tools. We used the AWS schema conversion tool, as we have mentioned multiple times, to make this all come true. We also invested in other tools, like the data mover tool or the data migration tool, and several of our teams built specific task-focused tools that they shared with the community as well, which enhanced the pace at which we actually migrated. Finally, I also mentioned that we had to redesign the solutions. We set up a solution architecture team, and the solution architecture team reviewed six-page design proposals for each of the business units, made recommendations, and made sure that they were giving feedback to the business units to design their solutions the right way. They were also responsible for conducting training sessions on topics spanning all the way from designing solutions, deploying solutions, and also running these solutions in an effective manner. So Craig is part of our solution architecture team, uh, which actually did this. So as you can see, there are multiple facets that you need to consider as you are going through this kind of a migration or transformation at this scale. So along the way, we learned several lessons, many technical and many organizational. 
So next, we'll look at some of the takeaways that you can apply within your own organizations when you're running this kind of transformation. And a lot of what we are going to talk about is going to be applicable in every enterprise. The scale might change a little bit, but net-net, all of these things will apply. First and foremost, you need your leadership buy-in. At the scale that you're gonna change the organization, the business processes, there are gonna be lots of challenges that you will run into. You need your leadership support as you're going through this. Next, you wanna make sure that your engineers and the teams that are going through this program have bought into this exercise. Because once you have the program going, for the momentum to continue, they need to be bought in, which means you need to clearly define the business value, the customer value of the program that you are after. Next, a lot of the users look at migration tasks as business overhead. So we made sure that we reduced as much of the burden on our users as possible. We created tools for automating the query migration. We automated the migration of the data to the point where we were getting about 95% plus uh, conversion of queries using the AWS schema conversion tool. Without manual effort, we were able to convert them successfully. In addition to that, our data mover tool allowed us to save considerable amount of time as we migrated the data, and also we were able to reprocess the data reliably and quickly. And overall, we were able to save over 1,200% hours of manual effort because of the automation investments that we made. And I would highly encourage, if you are approaching a program like this, to consider very seriously in investing in tools. Next, data warehouse is an ecosystem, which means there is teams that are publishing data into the system, and there are teams that are consuming data from the system. So the teams are trying to figure out how do they migrate from the old system to the new system, which means you need to plan to run systems in parallel, which means you have to have data that is published in both these systems. There is cost and resource associated with this particular approach. You need to factor that into your plans. In our case, we had about 1,700 teams that were publishing data into the warehouse, over 3,000 teams that were consuming data from the warehouse. So we had a, a massive problem there that we had to deal with. In addition to making sure we were running the systems in parallel, seeding the data in the new system and all of that, we needed to provide the right incentives that consumers actually move from the old system to the new system and don't continue to take dependencies on the old system. So for that, we made sure we put in policies in place that as early as beginning of this year to ensure that consumers do not take dependencies on the old system. If there was a new workload they were going to build, they had to build it on the new system. The new system was available for them. There was all the data. They had all the support. So that meant we were able to actually move the demand from the old system to the new system, and we were able to shut down the old system successfully, which led to a lot of the success we had as part of the last 10% was because of some of the policies that we put in place beginning of this year. Next, you got to recognize the fact that your users who are using the old system will need some training. They will have to be retrained to use the cloud technologies effectively. We highly recommend that you leverage a lot of the AWS resources that are available for training your users. You may need to augment that with your own internal training, and we did quite a bit of that. In our case, we had several business units who did not have users with the technical expertise to manage AWS systems. 
So in those cases, the business units made a, a binary decision where they basically said, hey, we need to go hire people or train our people to actually manage these systems. It took them over three to six months, and they were able to train a lot of their engineers to actually manage these systems. And in the meantime, the central team provided support and guidance for them to accomplish this. It's not gonna be easy, but it's very important that they recognize that there is going to be this need as part of this transformation. Finally, communication cannot be overemphasized. The program at this scale or at your scale, at an organizational scale, is more about changing people than technology. So you will have to account for that, which means you need to communicate as often as possible. And we deliberately invested in actually a very high-touch communication model because we knew we were going to run into lots of challenges, and we made sure that we were deeply engaged with the stakeholders. We needed their buy-in to make sure that the program was successful. We met with all of the stakeholders, all of the business units, every single week, making sure that they were unblocked, they were making progress, and if there were concerns, they were escalating to us, and we were addressing them right away. We also used several different communication strategies, including targeted communication, and so on and so forth. At the same time, one of the things that we did recognize was that our users were going through a lot of change, which meant that wherever possible, we tried to reuse tools and mechanisms that were already in place. One of the things that we made sure we reused was the issue management system that we have. We did not change that. We leveraged our issue management system for the overall program execution. As you see, there are lots of facets, lots of aspects that you need to consider as you do such a transformation. You need to focus on the people, you need to focus on the product, you need to focus on the process. If you are able to bring all these things together, and a lot of what we just talked about is mostly you're aware of that, it's just you need to apply that in this context, and I'm pretty certain you will be able to accomplish what we did. So in conclusion, AWS allowed us to build a, a massively scalable system that allows us to do both data warehousing and big data processing. It essentially eliminated for us a hardware procurement cycle which is cumbersome, and also it's painful. So we were, for instance, able to acquire thousands of Redshift nodes in a matter of weeks. That's inconceivable in an on-premises infrastructure. And AWS allowed us, for instance, to use S3, which scales massively. We are able to store petabytes of data. We are about, uh, I think, 200, 250 petabytes of data that is stored in a secure, robust, and scalable, cost-effective manner using S3. We built Andes, which is an open systems architecture-based uh, system. Now, teams are able to use Redshift, Redshift EMR. They're able to use uh, Spectrum, and also they're able to use business intelligence tools uh, like AWS QuickSight. And if a net new technology ships uh, tomorrow, we'll be able to integrate that uh, into our system. Despite us investing a lot of engineering resources into our old system, the old system stopped scaling for us, stopped meeting our business needs. So we built Andes, we migrated all of our business units to the new system. And on November 1st, 2018, I'm glad to uh, mention that we finally shut down our Oracle Data Warehouse completely. So we don't have anything running. It is possible, by the way, 
to migrate a petabyte scale, multi-decade old data warehouse to an AWS-based system. We just did it, and you can too. On that note, we thank you for your time, and we look forward to your questions. We'll take the questions on the side. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I have a great reInvent.